Welcome to the Smart Driving Cars podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. And that's where we are today, Alan, in your office. Yeah, here we are. Uh, Fred and I just um, Fred came to my class and uh, we decided to do the podcast after my class. Might as well do it in my office. So we're here together on two different Zooms. My goodness, it's great to have bandwidth. And on top in the latest Smart Driving Cars newsletter from The Atlantic, a piece by Connor Friedersdorf, headlined, Why Driverless Cars Are a Tough Sell. He asks readers for thoughts on self-driving cars. And on top, he has a quote from one reading, Our century-long love affair with all things automotive dooms the driverless concept to a niche market. Alan, you had some comments here. Well, I guess he's he's talking to um, readers of the Atlantic, uh, but I don't necessarily believe that the Atlantic is is a representative set of the people who need rides who can really benefit from this. <clears throat> and so maybe you know, for Atlantic readers who uh, probably in the income distribution spectrum. Um, somewhat pretty far up there in the who knows what 90th percentile. Um, you know, maybe each person does have access to a car. <clears throat> and if the this mobility is anticipated uh, to get those who can drive themselves, not drive themselves, um, that's a pretty, um, pretty uh, long reach. Uh, why? Because uh, to be better than that, uh, given that you already have this sunk investment on a vehicle and the sunk investment on all the uh, garages and driveways and and whatever is uh, to be able to uh, easily use that vehicle, then the marginal cost of using it is essentially zero. And so, um, you know, to put out a, a system that is going to have... <clears throat> equal levels of service in terms of um, flexibility and comfort and so on and so forth, and also have a perceived cost of essentially zero, which is the perceived cost that we have of a marginal trip in one of these vehicles when we can drive it ourselves. Um, that's a pretty high bar that you have to achieve. And so, you know, at best, you're going to break even, maybe a little bit, because, oh, my goodness, I don't want to deal with the hassles of parking. But if you look at the uh, 50% of other trips that take place, you know, at any particular instant of time where you need you need somebody to give you a ride. Now the question is, uh, who's going to give you this ride or what's going to give you this ride? And if what's going to give you this ride is... Uh, is uh, uh, company XYZ that has uh, um, driverless vehicles and um, happens to be off-peak um, when you have more of these driverless vehicles available to you at a drop of a hat, um, then they're probably going to offer you a pretty good level of service at a pretty low cost, which is likely a heck of a lot better than you um, even having your parents take you or your children take you, or your friends take you, or whomever else you can bum a ride from. And unless you happen to just be going to 
where the mass transit system is taking you at just the right time, uh, then uh, doing better than a mass transit system that doesn't do that is next to trivial. So all of a sudden, my goodness, it looks pretty darn good. And the uh, nicheness of this opportunity is not really niche because essentially half the trips at any given point of time are trips uh, for which people need somebody to give them a ride, take them to the store, take them to the bank, take them to the cello lesson, take them to basketball practice, take them to the game, take them across town to go visit a friend, take them and then come pick them up and bring them home. So all of a sudden, my goodness, a system that is just out there, just, you know, available to do that, poo, looks pretty darn good. Not a niche market, you know, essentially a billion, billion plus person trips a day. Um, half of them are being made by people that can do it for themselves, as I call them, home depotors, do it for yourselfers by having their own cars available at a essentially zero marginal cost who trip they do it themselves the other half oh my goodness not really that easy for much of the time boy they're just waiting for this so i completely disagree i think the atlantic you missed it sorry uh you're talking to the wrong folks you're talking to the folks that you know have so many cars in their garage you know of course they're going to use it but in the end, when these systems really work, guess what? Somebody's going to figure out this car. I mean, they got to park it. Where I'm parking it is actually not very close to where I'm really going. And whatever. And is there going to be a parking space? And, if, and then I got to drive it. And it's not going to be all this wonderful thing that one sees in the advertising of buying these vehicles. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, Land Rover or whatever. I mean, did you ever see a Land Rover ad in which the Land Rover is operating in, in an environment where most Land Rovers operate, which is in traffic streams and what? They're not out in the middle of nowhere and just backing up to the edge of a cliff. I, whatever never mind you're yeah. not on the new jersey turnpike and I... <laughs> I don't know whatever we'll see so i don't know you and, missed and there it, could Atlanta. be there could be generational differences too that we're talking about over, well over i guess time. it's generational i mean of course it's generational because you know these car companies have been beating into my head for how long you know that my goodness uh, i i can't be a, a, an appropriate member of society unless i have one of these things and i guess the younger generation is probably rolling their eyes saying i need what really are you kidding me so yes it's probably generational now maybe you know through their wonderful advertising and their madison avenue folks and their madmen um, they'll be able to convince them too. But um, look, when you really look at it, I mean, people need rides. Um, anyway, and that's what it boils down to. That's what it boils down to. Tell me how I can get a ride the easiest. Uh, but we'll get to the elevator later. <laughs> Saving it. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. I always end up there. 
So another piece from Forbes, Mercedes-Benz Drive Pilot. Uh, the self-driving car has, parentheses, sort of arrived. And they're talking about the latest software, Mercedes-Benz Drive Pilot. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's doing well. So, yeah, wonderful. Yes. And that, uh, I guess, limitations as, as there are with all of the systems that are on the road for consumers today and what you yeah. can and can't do with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it does some things, absolutely. The comfort and convenience and so on is great. But it's great for the person who can give them the the Home Depot person, the do-it-yourselfer. And it makes doing it yourself even easier. Wonderful. But to do it yourself, you've had to invest in the in the CapEx and all the other entourage that allows you to do it yourself. And again, if you if you have that, then wonderful. It's great, of course, no doubt. Do it, please. And and we've been saying for forever that that is a great market. But in the end, it's only half of the market of rides. Andrew Hawkins in The Verge has a piece, how Uber learned to stop fighting and play nice with taxis. And he mentions the uh, Los Angeles Yellow Cab and its plan to list about 1,200 taxis in Uber's app as part of a pilot program. Yeah, so I had the pleasure of being at the IATR, International Association of Transportation Regulator Meetings in Scottsdale at the end of last week that was put together by Matt Douse, former uh, commissioner in New York City Taxi and the Lim Limousine Commission. And and uh, there, you know, we did. There was representation from Uber, Lyft, as well as Taxi and Limousine, and and with respect to regulation, you know, overarching, how are these going to operate? Who's who's going to serve whom? How much? Discussing whether or not uh, it is a good thing to have uh, to know what a ride's going to cost you before you get into the vehicle, or to just know that your ride cost is going to be computed on some algorithm that is then embossed in a in a meter that will be sure to count all the all the do all the dot all the i's and cross all the t's and i guess that's still part of the argument well, of course the uber model is out there i'll tell you what it's going to cost you and uh, the taxi and limousine the uh, classic taxi and limousine as we're going to be out there on this meter uh the meter uh, has set values uh whereas the the price you're offered by by uber lyft um, uh, can be changed uh, based on congestion pricing and of course everybody's wondering well how the heck did you figure out that congestion pricing charge oh my goodness uh i mean if everybody's coming out of the swift conference concert how could we possibly serve everybody so therefore what we're going to do is jack up the price so that only the rich get served and the other ones i don't know how they get served i guess or that maybe it's going to encourage a few more folks to sh uh, drivers to show up so a few more folks uh, get picked up but that's how we're going to deal with 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 uh, high demand 
and I guess I just couldn't take it anymore. And so I commented that, uh, that um, my goodness, um, there's another way you can deal with a surge in demand. You could, you could actually share rides as opposed to being just ride hailing. You could be ride sharing. I mean, really ride sharing. I know some people call it ride sharing. It's not ride sharing. Sharing a ride with a driver is like sharing a ride with a computer. No, I'm sharing a ride. If I'm sharing a ride with you, Fred, you know, that I we weren't going together anyway, that that's sharing a ride. Oh, they were infuriated. I mean, share rides. Oh, my goodness. Who would want to share a ride? I don't know. So I, I wasn't very popular at points there, um, but um, uh, to me that's that's how you handle peak demand. Okay, is you is you basically you know put more people in the vehicle, and it's amazing how little of that is. I think I think lifty. And they they try to tell oh because of COVID nobody's going to want to get into the vehicle with you. Yet at the W, every time I, at least half the times when I got into the elevator, other people got in with me. And nobody refused to get in with me because, you know, they were going to wait for the next elevator. Never mind. It was, it wasn't pretty. But of course, I don't know how to behave. So it's my fault. We'll have more on what you had to say. Yeah, I'll say more about that. In just a few minutes. Yeah. The Teamsters Union, Alan, is urging NHTSA uh, to deny an exemption for GM to build the cruise origin. Uh, and they, you know, these are limited numbers anyway that they are planning to build under the exemption anyway. Well, is, is of course, the way I see it, there are two fallacies with their interest at, at uh, not having uh, driverless trucks or driverless vehicles. Uh, one is is that um, uh, on the driverless truck end, I mean, a truck driver does more than drive. Okay, and in fact, um, I've I've argued, we've argued here that uh, improving comfort and convenience of truck drivers is really important. Taking a driver out of a truck, the amount of potential additional work that you have to do to make that happen and happen safely um, probably isn't worth it certainly not in the short run so the the, the thought that you're going to you're going to have any truck driver become unemployed especially with the enormous truck driver shortage and so on at at, at this point is 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 non-existent now what it does is if you do if you just improve the quality of life, the quality of the office for the truck driver, which uh, we've said many times here that OSHA should really be uh, in there um, uh, highly encouraging um, um, uh, CEOs of trucking companies to improve the quality of life of the drivers by putting in um, um, advanced driver assistance systems in trucks, then if you improve the quality of life of that job, I think more people will want to do it. And given what UPS and others are willing to pay drivers, my goodness, um, is if I was starting my career, I wouldn't want to be a professor. Uh, you know, 
especially at a backwater university like Princeton. I mean, what if, okay, but but seriously, so so in the end, um, in the trucking, but in 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 the passenger area, uh, then then actually the the uh, the amount of increased uh, manufacturing activity and 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 activity that and and improvements in the economy and and all that by people becoming more mobile and improving their quality of life and their their ability to to better get to jobs and things like that probably has uh, has the implication that in fact one will need more truck drivers not fewer and so um once you look at that and if the if the um if the um, teamsters are really just uh, you know trying to protect uaws or other other people that might become unemployment what this does is just the the, the person that ends up being unemployed here is not a driver because of the crew's origin because we're going to need as many drivers human drivers to drive people as they're being driven around today because the type of ride that they need can best be delivered and they'll best buy it because it has a driver. But the amount of other trips that currently disemploys parents, children, friends, associates, and so on, giving other people rides, those are the ones that won't have to do that anymore. And they're not in the workforce. So in fact, the, the net of all this, of this technology is more jobs. And also we can go through the argument of better jobs and therefore should have this support of the unions. So I don't understand it, but of course, I'm just an academic. I'm just Ken. In your... 51st year is 52nd, 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 52
doing the old stuff. Seems like a very small price to pay to 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 modernize. And you know, this is Tesla modernizing as I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, they're just they're fresh they're fresh on the on the block and they're already modernizing. And um unless the cyber truck ends up being an Etzel only watch out. And if it turns out to be a Ford F-150, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, but who am I? I'm, again, just an academic in the Department of Operations <laughs> Research and Financial Engineering. I don't know. I, there, there you go again. With, without two nickels <laughs> to rub together. So what can I tell you? <laughs> Cry for me, please. <laughs> Alan, you have a comment on Microsoft announcing a new feature, an AI companion, that it's calling Copilot. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> for those who know Alan's history, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what is it now? Let's see, it must have been 1995 or something like that, when we were trying to figure out what to call our turn by turn navigation system when we were sort of on the bleeding edge of that stuff. And I don't know, I I wanted to call it Guiding Angel. Can you imagine if we would have really called it Guiding Angel? I mean, maybe I could have been a hit on the on the Barbie movie of that of that era. But uh, but otherwise, I mean, what a bad name that bit. I always thought yeah, Guiding Angel here. I want as I'm driving, I don't want to get lost. I want to be able to get back home and things like that. I just thought, can you imagine what, what the heck was the matter with me, Fred? I was, I was pushing for guiding angel and I guess everybody else around me, finally, I don't know somebody, I don't know who said co-pilot and we said, bam. I mean, co-pilot helps, doesn't do it, but as a helper. And that's really what these things do. And I, I, you know, I've loved the name ever since then. I think we trademarked it. I would hope we did. Maybe we didn't have enough money to trademark it, but I think we did. And when we sold the company to Trimble, I think as I look at them, as they continue to market a turn-by-turn navigation product in the transportation industry, I think they have a little R on there and their co-pilot. And, you know... Microsoft is out there once again, you know, I don't know. I, I think it's, I think it's trademark infringement, but I, I don't have any association with the company anymore. <laughs> I'm, I, I was put out the pasture. What is it now? 11 years ago. Um, and so from the pasture, I'm just rolling my eyes, but anyway, Copilot is a great name for things that help one in mobility. And May Mobility, our friends there, have announced uh, their newest software release focused on rider-only operations with plans to have services in a number of markets, including Ann Arbor, Arlington, Grand Rapids, and Sun City, and more, they're saying, coming uh, for the end of this year, early next. We, we've seen the May Mobility folks in, in action. Yeah, and, and hopefully they will be able to do driverless you know, by the end of the year, they've been suggesting they claim they're on target, and that's that's fantastic. Um, the issue with driverless is that um, I, I guess I'm at the point, especially after being in Scottsdale, 
riding around and in San Francisco riding around. Um, um, Waymo and Cruz, I don't think they're faking it. They're doing it. And and for driverless, you have to do it. You can't fake it. Not suggesting it in any sense of made mobility, but you, you and it'd be nice to have a, a third entity out there actually doing it uh, and doing it safely. First of all, it has to be necessary condition. It has to be safe. Not safe. You know, don't even don't even bother. Don't don't show up, please. You're going to hurt everybody as well as yourself. Um, but that's. That's the opportunity for mobility is the is to be able to deliver high quality mobility um, affordably, and the way you can do it affordably is of of course you can price it low if some if you have a sugar daddy that's paying picking up the tab, but the question is is what happens when that when that runs out, then how long do you have to go back and ask for, say, the students' alms for the poor, which is which is where mass transit in the United States has been since I've been in the business, which is again more than fifty years, and and looked at it even in 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 history, you know, it it's hopelessly um, uh, maybe bankrupt in other words having to ask for public subsidy to do what they need now people will say well we couldn't do the car unless there was a public subsidy in there for who knows what they're you know not really being a good steward of the environment or whatever and then so on and so forth but you know with respect to public transit i mean there are you know dollar budgets allocated out of that are gained out of tax dollars to keep those things afloat so the only way to, you know, and I guess for, I guess I spent my life trying to find deter, find systems that could do it without a subsidy and be affordable. In other words, really reduce the cost and the, the only, to reduce the cost of giving a ride, you one have to have enormous productivity of the physical assets that you bring to bear to do that. One, that's one and two. Um, you can't afford to feed too many families. You can afford to feed some. You can't afford to feed too many because feeding a lot of families is expensive. And so, you know, is there a way to do it with high productivity and with uh, just a few very productive workers who really earn a great salary and feed their families well, which is, I guess, where we are, where I think we are about to enter with driverless. And for those who, who need a driver as part of their mobility, absolutely, please pay for that driver. Uh, but, but when you pay for that driver and you take an Uber Lyft trip, tip well, Okay. Because that person has to feed their family, and they're gi they're giving you a ride. And if you can't afford it, then that's then that's really where we need to find another way to do it. And 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 we can't put it on the back of taxi drivers or 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 Uber drivers or Lyft drivers. 
you know, why should they not be earning a a a living wage to provide you service? I mean, they they, they can do it as as a as a contribution to society. Absolutely, encourage them. And you know there are many operations that sort of work on volunteerism to get people rides. Uh, you know, Catherine Freund's uh, ITN network, which basically is organized to uh, have seniors uh, give back by tr- giving rides to mostly other seniors, and I, you know. I love Catherine for what she's doing, what she's been doing. She's fantastic. Okay. And and the people who do that get a lot of value, personal value out of doing that. Um, but, but that only works in a certain sector that doesn't work everywhere. There are a lot of people for which one can't find volunteers to do this. Now, if we set up an economy out there in which you know people the get a living wage just because they're people and, and therefore you know as what they want to do in return for that living wage give rise, rise to people uh, very affordably you know I'm all for it of course but we're not quite there yet. So right now we're just trying to say, my goodness, um, maybe we can apply some of the, a couple of these computers here and so on and so forth and maybe get that done. So that at least the people can have some mobility out of, I mean, that's, that's where all that stuff comes from. And I think that leads us uh, to Arizona and the conference that took place uh, last week, the IATR uh, 36th Annual Conference, and you spoke about modernizing mobility. Yeah, the focus was modernizing mobility, and I mean, you can imagine kind of the tension in the room where you have um, where you have the taxi and limousine industry on the one hand. Let's not say that they're the the uh, conventional industry out there to tr- give rides that's just been, you know, in some sense, um, transitioned by a new mobility form called ride hailing, which for them basically came out of nowhere all of a sudden. My goodness, uh, you don't need to call a taxi dispatcher and uh, you actually don't even need a medallion to deliver the service. And something that nobody ever thought anybody would do really is get into a stranger's car and have them drive you someplace. Certainly not uh, anyone in the economic strata uh, that is, that now basically dominates uh uh, ride-hailing ridership, which is upper-income strata on, biz- on business trips. Who would have thought they would get into just somebody else's car to drive them? But in fact, everybody did. It is, or not everybody, a lot of people are who can, who can afford it. 
and and the reason is is certainly the the ride hailing folks did a fantastic job on on the app and on rating systems that end up you know and somewhat ensuring on a naturalistic basis appropriate behavior by the driver and appropriate behavior by the rider because the rider rates the driver and the driver rates the rider so if you go in and you know you get bad ratings as a rider you know and you go in and request a trip i, I imagine that the that the lift and the and and the uber algorithm say you know we have a lot of other customers here we want to take care of first uh, maybe you know if we're really desperate we'll give you a ride at least i would hope that that's what they do okay and on the same thing you know if if all of a sudden uh <laughs> Seems to me every time I use these things, I, I I don't get anybody that has under eight stars or something. I mean, or I know there's a limit of five, okay? But you know, I don't think I've ever had anybody. Now, maybe since I'm such a good rider, the algorithms treat me really well and only give me the best drivers. I I get maybe that's going on in there. But of course, I would behave. Oh, maybe some people are surprised that I behave. So they've been disrupted by that system. Now all of a sudden, here comes a driverless system that that now can maybe do the same darn thing, almost the same ride, without the expense of a driver. So all of a sudden, you know. It's one thing to be able to compete against somebody, another wage earner who has to feed a family and uh, and maybe just uh, some computer support that one person happens to have versus another person not having. All of a sudden, now here's somebody who basically can do this all the same things that Uber and Lyft can do and not pay for a driver. So that their cost basis of doing this is, I don't know, a fifth of what it is for a driver. Wow. Now that's disruption in a marketplace. I have essentially just as good service at, you know, a opportunity to price it substantially cheaper. I mean, Schumpeter, the economist, the former Longtime former Harvard economist, that is a disruptive technology, and so now they're facing that as a possible entity in this. And I guess you know, in my thinking about you know what message I might try to give the taxi and limousine um, community, I, I think my if I may say my central message for for my perspective, whatever good or bad that might mean, is that if in fact we do get a, the creation of vehicle fleets, of automated vehicles that deliver this mobility uh, to those who need a ride, I think those entities 
are going to need an, someone to operate them. I don't think it's going to be one centralized operation, let's say somewhere in central USA and in Kansas, somewhere at the geographic center of the United States that sits there and manages all the fleets around the country. I think, I think, you know, each community, each city, each whatever is going to have, is going to have its fleet managed by, I don't know, uh, you know, a franchise, call it a franchise uh, that does that, you know, just like, you know, I don't think McDonald's headquarters manages each and every one of the McDonald's around the country. I mean, they, or same thing for, for Starbucks, you know, Starbucks is out there selling coffees. You know, these things are out there going to be selling and, and delivering rides. So yeah, you need somebody who knows about delivering rides and knows about the customers who need rides. To me, the people who know the most about customers who need rides in a community are the taxi and limousine operators or operator. So in sort of my vision of how this, this would evolve is that a taxi and limousine uh, uh, operator would then augment what they do, they have some folks that that deliver mobility with a driver, and they have a whole fleet of vehicles that deliver mobility with a computer, and they manage this operation to you know best serve the community, to best serve the customers, just like any other sort of franchise or business in the community does that in their particular niche that they operate. So, you know, the, the simple message, a lot of messages were being put out there, but the message I was saying, if I look, geez, driverless for a taxi limousine operator in a community is an opportunity for you to take your business and, and, and double it, bro, 2X, maybe 3X, maybe 4X, maybe 5X, maybe 10X, maybe 20X. You're the one that should be managing those things. Yes, yeah, some centralized entity is going to provide you with, with the, the, the manuals and the training and all that to maintain the vehicles and to make sure that they're clean and to make sure that they're fueled and, and will probably then lease to you the software for empty vehicle management and the marketing and all the advertising and all the other things that you need to that a McDonald's needs to, to deliver hamburgers in a community or that, um, that a Starbucks needs to, to sell lattes in a community. And this is an opportunity for you to position yourself to do this. I, I don't know. I mean, that's still kind of in my grandiose view of, of, of taking the technology that works and putting that out there. Now, somebody might say, well, why isn't it a transit agency? Aren't they in the business of giving rides? Yes, they are in the business of giving rides. 
but you know they're also in the business of making sure uh, of satisfying whatever um, uh, bargaining um, unit is in their midst, and um, and that just seems to me to be just a hard harder discussion to have. And so you know, while it is transit, um, I I've not seen a transit agency. Uh, go out there and say, hey, my goodness, uh, all of a sudden, I really want to double my ridership. I really want to uh, increase my ridership by a factor of five. And the way that I can do this effectively and efficiently and 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 productively and, and, and inexpensively is by embracing uh, driverless mobility as, as I augment uh, uh, the service that I haven't seen it. Now, maybe I haven't been paying attention or I didn't answer my phone. Uh, I don't know. I haven't seen it. So that was the main message. The other message is, is maybe, you know, as I sort of gave this, I'd, I'd sort of like to go through the slides that I presented just for the heck and people want to see the slides because, of course, um, you know, it, it really brings out the uh, elevator analogy. And then look at kinds of the things that I was showing for an operational design domain in Scottsdale. Uh, and uh, not only um, uh, where one might have uh, uh, provide the service, but also what it might look like in terms of, of a real-time simulation of an animation. Well, let's take a quick look. Yeah, so I, I just titled uh, my presentation, uh, Modernizing the Giving Rides uh, at the IATR uh, 36th Annual Conference. And um, of course, I used it as a, as a way to plug my book, my upcoming Elsevier book uh, with uh, Michael Senna, The Real Case uh, for Driverless Mobility, uh, putting driverless vehicles to use for those who really need a ride. Um, anyway, hopefully um, Elsevier will get it out in December and uh, we'll see. And um, of course, everyone should uh, get my book, but whatever. Um, um, but Really, it's all about uh, level of service and the delivery of rides is really what we're talking about in the delivery of rides. Uh, safety is absolutely necessary. If you're not safe, you know, forget about even trying, you know, please don't because uh, one, you're not going to be able to do it. You're going to just cause harm. So don't do it. Um, and so safety is really a floor that enables a beginning. It's not really something that one wants to maximize. Of course, one wants to be absolutely safe, but this is an asymptotic type thing. And and so, you know, um, um, once you're safe enough, of course you want to become safer, but th that's not the, the key objective. I, I think affordability happens to be. Why? Because, it, you know, it's fundamental economics minus two you know supply demand and in fact uh, you know if i can uh, if i can uh, make the uh, thing more affordable more people should want to take it another hand that is equity you know and again the affordability leads to the equity because because then uh, i i just make it available to more and of course uh, you know if there's no hang up in terms of of the technology doesn't care who it serves and of course, the operator shouldn't care who it serves. So, and therefore, you should be able to serve everybody. Whereas, you know, in today's mobility systems, when there's a person involved, 
there there's some some subtleties in there in terms of well do i really want someone who's can't really see with their with their dog in my car what's the dog going to do in my car i mean well i think if we have driverless vehicle whatever the dog ends up doing in the car we'll clean it okay and it's much better to give you a ride just because you 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 end up anyway and sustainability of course but sustainability is no longer an argument because everybody that's thinking about any of these things is talking about doing them with electric vehicles so that's a and of course the high quality and the high quality means that the level of service of being able to go from an a to a b is such that you know it's a high quality service going from an a to a b and it's almost not any A to any B, but within a geofenced area, at least within any A to any B or most of them. And so if we look at high quality rides and we look at the elevator, talk about a high quality ride. Okay, because all I need to do is show up at an elevator bank and the doors open and I get in and my goodness, the darn thing is demand responsive because oh, I might have had to push a, a button, but maybe I didn't even push a button. There was a vehicle waiting there and whether it's push a button or push a phone or just you know a, a system that recognizes my presence and listens to me and say hey i need a ride i mean you know the man was 24 7 you know they're available 24 7 and you know um, uh, very few elevators in any place shut down overnight equitable uh, easy and inviting it is easy and inviting how much easier do you want it to once you show up here you walk in and if somebody's in a wheelchair, they wheelchair in. If somebody is is can't see very well, they can they can touch around. I mean, and you know, some people might say, "Who?" and a little cramp, but it's you know, I don't have to stoop down and be wedged in with a shoehorn and things like that. Really, I mean, it's amazing, affordable. Well, it's free. I don't know any elevator to charge it, but maybe there are probably some. Why? Because it is so fundamental to making use of the real estate in which it has been in, implemented that those that that find charging mechanisms for that real estate say, sure, of course, uh, it costs me more. It will cost me more to collect the money than 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 than, uh, than me just paying for it because it, it's absolutely necessary. The really neat thing about elevators is they flex to serve peak demand. So it's sometimes during the day, and a bunch of people get in there at the same time, or it stops along the way and picks up people to go in there with others. You say, "Oh my goodness, COVID! I mean, I can't get near anybody." Well, I don't know, maybe. It seems to me that elevators, people get in the elevators with other folks. Maybe they hide their face and they put who knows what in the fat and, and around there. But why? Because the alternative is the steps. Oh, my goodness. You're kidding. Uh, so, you know, people uh, may not be everything they want, but uh, whatever. And when I say it does require a little shoe leather, 
is because the elevators aren't at the front door or all the various front doors to a building. There may be various ways to get into the building, but people are brought into that to a, to a particular area. They get in together. And so there are fixed points in the use one. Oh, you know, where's the elevator? You go to it, you get in, it opens the door, you get out, and you forget about it. That's how easy it is. And there's no reason why horizontally, if you're going from here to there to there to there, you can't take this, stretch it so it's linear, and it looks exactly like an elevator shaft in a, in a building. Or if you take this elevator, scratch and scrunch it so it goes like that, it actually served any origin destination horizontally. So the analogy is completely there. So this is where we've come up with this move style mobility system, mobility opportunity, vehicle equity system. I'm telling you, we really had to work to be able to, you know, use the acronym moves, but it's styled to provide elevator-like service horizontally, enhancing life throughout a community, that two-dimensional operational design domain, rather than linearly up and down, enabling viability to tall buildings. It's the analogy is is essentially perfect. So this move style mobility is, is really aimed at providing fixed pickup and maybe discharge locations where service would be provided. And um, instead of the ride hailing, which basically can pick you up anywhere, but if one looks at the way ride hailing is currently implemented, if I'm at Newark Airport and want to get a lift home, I have to go to a designated location to get into the vehicle. And in some airports, it's been done exceedingly well in which there are is very well-defined places in which the vehicles pull up and it's very efficient, as opposed to, you know, just picking you up anywhere, you know, triple parking, who knows what while you get in and whatever. And and I think that the that the two systems, the, the systems in Arizona and the systems in San Francisco are 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 making their job much more difficult to provide service that doesn't disrupt a bunch of things by saying they want to copy what Uber and Lyft can do in terms of ride hailing anywhere. Um, I think that it would be better in the beginning to basically locate, put locations in areas in which one doesn't have to exercise too much shoe leather to be able to get to and from those, uh, to get there so that there are vehicles waiting there. Just like when you go to an elevator bank, there's a elevator waiting with its door open or one will come quickly to serve you. Uh, and so it's sort of, yes, it's not maybe as, as good of a level of service, but I don't know. I To me, I think, I think it's a much easier way to operate. Plus it gives you the opportunity to share rides. So that if, if a vehicle is, as is shown here, as, as a little operational design domain, which is about 12 square, 15 square miles in, in Scottsdale, these are the various locations. Well, once you pick this with respect to our, our modeling software, it then uh, locates uh, uh, 
kiosks or locations for pickup sort of in the center of mass of the, the, the trips that it would serve and, and creates a, such, such a, a network. network. I should, should point, point out, out for us to do this, this what, what, what did we do? We basically created a second life of the United States. You know, in other words, we have where sort of everybody lives. We have where all the, the, the hospitals are, all the schools, all the churches, all the train stations, all the whatever generators. And as part of that, we've created a virtual representation of the 320 or 30 million individuals that, um, that live in the United States as represented by the census and created households for these and basically put the economic characteristics so that we uh, have some sort of auto ownership in their their. The, the number of vehicles they have available to them and for each individual basically put in a daily tour that would take them to work, take them to school, take them to synagogue, take them wherever they wanted to go, take them shopping. And so we, what we have out of this is 1.1 million trips, um, uh, 1.1 billion trips uh, for the United States for these trips. So what we can do for any area is basically we can take a bounding box, which is what we did here to create this network around where, around Scottsdale, Arizona, which is where we're giving the talk. And basically out of that extract the trips that are being, that are being, uh, that would be in that area. And from that, uh, put together a moves network, which is then rep represented by that, these particular um, kiosks. And we can see here by the color rating, the number one, the most, the biggest kiosk is down here. Uh, in, uh, in in this particular location, and what we can do is, is basically look at the at the trips that might be served by this kiosk. It's ranked number one. It's on East Fourth Street. It has a, a market capability of four thousand four hundred sixteen trips per day. We have here the cumulative distribution of the, of the the distance that those trips travel. That, that could be served by by this. And that cumulative distribution has that, that if we look here at the 50% point that that um, that I think that the um, that the average trip length for that is quite small. It's it's less. It's around only about a, a mile that that's uh, that, that's associated with that. Um, and and uh, and actually of the trips that there, they're very local local trips that end up being being served for that. And what we also have is when these trips occur by various types, um, uh, other trips and work trips, mostly many of the other trips are, are, are school trips uh, that originate from this by time of day. And of course we can blow this up and make it look. With respect to the whole area we have in terms of the the, uh, uh, the of trips that are greater than a half a mile, we have a total of, if I can read it, um, um, 17, uh, wait, no, that's not the right number, 28,255 uh, person trips per day is a total addressable market for this particular area. This happens to be that kiosk, the, the, if I can, and, 
zoom into another kiosk. This rank, this, this, uh, there are much fewer trips uh, associated with that kiosk right here. There are only, um, this is the 36th rank kiosk. Uh, the number of purse trips that, that it can serve is, is 229 per day. It's not all that many, uh, but that's, that's really what exists for this. The routes here are basically the network of streets that one would use to go from this kiosk to any other kiosk. And as you can see, that represents, is then, is then representative of the, um, um, the, the roads that would end up being used to then go to the other kiosks. So if we take the ensemble of all the routes from all the kiosks, we, we basically end up getting the network, which is these black lines that we see for that, that would be the streets that would be used by these vehicles. Now, of course, this network can be modified in case maybe some of the, these roads aren't as easy to use or aren't as safe as others. But this is an initial test to say this is the this, this subset of streets. It's not every street, as we can see, you know, the whole street system out there. We don't need to use these other streets. We only need to use these to be able to get to where we want to go. And the reason we divert ourselves around here, I think that's kind of one way the other way or something like that i'm not sure exactly why that is but anyway that that's how we that the network is automatically generated out of this process what we then do with this process is we then simulate the operation of this system throughout throughout the day because of course this has a distribution of demand so what we can we not do with with the the system is we basically um simulate its operation and uh, can simulate its operation based on a number of different parameters for example a fleet size which is as you can see out here we're going to look to serve this this um, this operational design domain here with each of these station locations as is shown with 50 vehicles Okay, and what happens, what ends up being up here at the end of the simulation, what the um, what the um, uh, performance has been in simulating 24 hours of giving rides on this, this, this thing. And what we see that that for this, um, um, because of the socioeconomic location, a bunch of other things. And start, I think we said that the total addressable market here was something like 24,000 person trips per day type of thing. Uh, we're only going to serve uh, basically 7,000 of those trips. And in attempting to, we think that the, on today, we're going to have basically 6,994 customers show up for service. It turns out that uh, through the simulation, the, because this is the dashboard of the bottom line of running the whole thing, that we ended up serving only 5,579 of those uh, uh, people that needed trips. And uh, and the others, what happened was that, um, that because we have a service level um, constraint here that if a person isn't served within five minutes, 
uh, they get uh, unhappy with us and they go away. Uh, we're in the process of changing that and say, okay, well, okay, let's just try to serve everybody. Well, you know, how many people got the worst service and so on? Because we, we know how well everybody, uh, each one of these entities is served because the simulation goes through each particular trip, loads them in a vehicle, has a vehicle wait around to see if there's any ride sharing and so on. It turns out that for this, that we have actually end up for the day having an average vehicle occupancy that's, that's less than one, okay? There has been some ride sharing going on, but there has to also be some empty vehicle management. You have to get vehicles from maybe a, a, a centralized depot to the, to, the, to the locations and maybe back to, to the depot to get refueled, cleaned, and so on and so forth. So all those empty miles are end, end up being in there as well as the loaded miles so that the average vehicle occupancy only happens to be that. The vehicle miles traveled, uh, you know, we traveled, uh, you know, 12,245, of which uh, 2,500 uh, 2, uh, were empty in repositioning because this, now people say, oh my goodness, you have vehicles going around empty. In fact, in the daily flow of vehicles here in Princeton or anywhere, do you know how many of those vehicles are actually empty of riders? You know, if 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 a parent gives a ride to a kid to, to cello lessons and comes back home, when they come back home, that vehicle's empty. It has a person driving, but that's not a rider. So what we're talking about here is empty of riders, and what we're talking uh, about um, in in, uh, in in terms of of uh, of uh, average vehicle occupancy. There's usually, essentially, almost all the time, uh, on average, a rider, and these are the number of riders served, and these are these are the the numbers for. Like how long did people have to wait for the elevator door to open? You get in, the doors to close and for the thing to leave. I mean, the average um, uh, wait time was 3.85 minutes on departure, which isn't all that long. And we know that in the simulation, it was not never greater than five because if it was going to be greater than five, we assume the customer got um, disenfranchised with us and decided not to use us. So that's basically uh, what uh, what happens to this. What this number is here, the 38.96 seconds, is if we look at those for which a ride is shared, they may not have been going exactly the same place. They, they might, a little diversion may have had to take place, drop them off and then to take the person on to the destination. The, for those for which there was added time added, it only it added less than forty seconds to those trips on average. So in fact, the the alignment of the shared rides in the simulation was actually really quite good. What we have down here is really what's happening instantaneously at this time, which it, this time here happens to be right now three minutes and 38 seconds after midnight. 
Okay, so maybe we'll kind of, you know, move it down because not much happens. Let's go to, you know, somewhere around seven o'clock and maybe we'll sort of, and let's let, let this thing go. So so this is then what is happening at this particular time, seven ten in the morning. Uh, we only have, a, 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 things haven't really started happening. We only have three vehicles moving out there. Not too many passengers are going. If we go a little bit deeper in time around eight o'clock, we see that many more vehicles are going in that simulation. If we sort of hold it up for a second, if we, I think if, if I can stop it, okay. We can see that over here with respect to the occupancy, these folks out here in these vehicles have only one rider on board. Uh, let's see if we can if we can find vehicles. This vehicle here, because it's red, is being empty vehicle repositioned. And I, I think, think we, we have, have uh, I, I guess, guess the color here, here we have two, we have a ride share right here in terms of what's going on. So if we continue the darn thing going, this is now, you know, 8.33 a.m., 8.34 a.m., we have 22 vehicles in operation. We can speed up the animation a little bit faster. Uh, we now have 23 vehicles moving, 19. They're going in, dropping off people, picking up people, and you can kind of see where, where the activity is going on in, in, all, in, in, in that operation. Let's see, let me zoom out a little bit more. Well, maybe not quite that much. Uh, not too much happening up here. We have 19, 20 vehicles. We can then move to other parts of the day. This is at 1045. This is after people have gone to work. This is what's moving around in midday. We can then look at it at 2.39, 2.40 in the afternoon, 20 vehicles going on, and you can see them moving around. Yeah, we can look at 6.35 in terms of a lot of lots happening down here. We have 40. We have almost all of our fleets in operation here. If we stop it, if I can, okay. We see some empty vehicles being repositioned. We see, we see uh, you know, if this is the where the, there are the two passenger, a couple of vehicles around in here that have a couple of people uh, that are that are operating. And basically we can kind of watch them operating, you know, through seven o'clock and therefore we can take it, you know, late, come on out here. Ah. Oh, went too far, come on. Don't restart me. We can look at nine, ten o'clock at night as to what's happening. Some a lot of empty vehicle reposition is going on. We have 25, 22, 21 vehicles that are being used. It's not 11 o'clock at night. And basically through this through this animation, we can see and 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 as we approach midnight, there's less and less vehicles being used. We can see how how this uh, this network operates in this uh, level of service with this configuration and with the empty vehicle management algorithm that ends up generating um, uh, uh, daily um, uh, 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 operational characteristics as is shown here. To us, one of the really interesting things of this is that with 50 vehicles, 
we ended up serving 5,579 person trips, which means on average, you can do the arithmetic very easily. There's slightly over 100 person trips per vehicle being used. If we then put, our, put this in our cost model with respect to this kind of vehicle productivity, this number of miles being used in terms of the the vehicle operating costs, um, the, the costs that one would have or the budget that one would have for marketing, for customer acquisition, for customer retention, for insurance, for cleaning, for energy, for all the other things, we can then come up with through our, our cost model what it would be the cost to operate this uh, per Trip. And it turns out that if you get to be at, at get around productivities of a hundred person trips per day in areas such as this, Scottsdale, I mean, and you look at the kind of numbers that you would have in terms of, of nominal operating, you can serve these customers for something like two dollars and fifty cents a ride. That's the cost of delivering the service. If we can be delivering service at that level, and we haven't even optimized the locations of these of these kiosks or really optimized the operation, the opportunity to do affordability throughout the area and just give rides to me is phenomenal. And I don't, I just, I can't understand why Cruz and Waymo hasn't been out there. Oh my goodness. Okay. And this is just with 50 vehicles out there serving just this little area. And I think if you do that for the people that travel in there, which is not a, this is a small city, but it's not a trivial number. I don't know. What was the total addressable market? I forgot what it was. 24,000 person trips a day. Wow. And this is what we found in many communities. We found it in Trenton. We found it in Patterson. We found it in Newark. We found it in... Yeah, oh, we found it in, uh, in, in San Francisco. San Francisco, you have the opportunity to serve 2.1 million person trips a day. And the, and the dynamics look similar. And so, you know, the scale up instead of serving 12 square miles here, you serve 49 square miles there. Uh, put a fleet of, you know, a thousand vehicles out there. You know, you're going to, you're going to serve and a thousand vehicles at a hundred per is, is just a hundred thousand of that 2.1 million that you need to have as customers on a daily basis. And you can be out there providing the service, I think. Anyway, that's where we are with all of our simulations and animations. And Well, kudos and to the team that put, put those simulations, the capability together, Alan. That's yeah, cool. yeah. So uh, Bryce Rasmus and all my students and Chris Dragomir and, you know, and going back to, uh, to Lal Mufti 10 years ago, who started all this stuff. Uh, Talal was the was the first student who sort of we just got frustrated with everything and said, "Geez, what we want to do is uh, 
is just create a second a, a second world and create the virtual individual so that we could look at each individual just at one time, but at least look at what it, what all this can be in the, in the microcosm of that I think is appropriate in terms of the trip making. So that's where we are. Terrific, and that that kind of tool is uh, really available. You're you're going to make it available. Yeah, no, we have it available. So you know, it's uh, this is all done in the academic environment. You know, it's students are my students are playing with it, or we'll play a lot more with it as we get through the semester. But uh, you know, and we'll we just do it. Terrific. On that note, we're going to wrap things up. Hop on an elevator. So. <laughs> You can find us at smartdrivingcar.com, also on Spotify, TuneIn, Apple, Google, SoundCloud, wherever you turn to for podcasts. You can find my tech reports at textination.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with Alan Kornhauser. Thank you for listening or watching. Please continue to stay safe. And thank you, everybody, for listening to me droning on. I just wonder whether or not you all made it, but, you know, I'm just into it. So hope you are, too. <laughs>